Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our workshop. This workshop series is entitled On the Shoulders of Giants. On the Shoulders of Giants. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads for a word of prayer as we go into our next presentation. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study and share and learn together. Speak to our hearts now. Inspire us, motivate and move us, we pray in your name. Amen. So this presentation is entitled, You Died for That. You know, if you're going to die, and it's before your life end, and someone is taking your life, you want it to be something that's worth it. Worth it. I was just looking on Instagram, I think it was yesterday, and there was a picture. It was Twitter. It was on my feed. The algorithm gods. And it was a picture of someone who was a parkour athlete. Is that, am I saying it right, parkour? You know those guys that run around, jump off buildings, and do somersaults and all that kind of stuff, and whatever. And it was like, this is the last picture of this famous parkour athlete who was doing a backflip 16 stories up. And he mistimed his landing, and he landed 16 stories down. Obviously, he died. And in my mind, I think, you died? You died for a video? You died for a picture of you jumping on the side of a building? Like, what's the point? If you're going to die, you want your death to mean something if it's earlier than you're supposed to have died. Well, as Adventists, when we look at the end of time, we have this idea that there's certain issues that are going to be in play certain issues that will be on the line, and certain issues that, if we understand prophetically the message of Adventism, we say, it's worth me dying for that. What about our spiritual forefathers? What about the people that we say, if I, stood further, if I can see further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants? There's a few quotes in this one that I also had in my first presentation, but I want to go over them again because I think they are important. History, I believe, is linked to identity. If we don't know our history, if we don't know our family, then who are you? When you know who your parents are, or your grandparents, or your uncles and aunties, you understand that their decisions, their convictions, or their, their weaknesses. I have a struggle with that because of my dad and my granddad. And you know that, and you can kind of understand that a little bit, and it helps you out in life to know how to overcome or how to manage the life that you live. Understanding your genetics is important. Those who don't know their history, Edmund Burke said, are doomed to repeat it. We can see this on a global scale. We can see this on a national scale. And we can see this also on an individual scale as well. It's important for us to know our history. I shared this quotation this morning. Because anytime there's been dictatorial regimes, Cambodia, um, Germany, Russia, these places, what have they done? They've tried to erase the history of the people, erase the memory of the people, so they can reconstruct it again with a new identity. Burning the books. Destroying the libraries. If I can get rid of that knowledge, then the people don't know. Today, they're not destroying the libraries. They're not burning down the libraries. All the information is there. But we're a population that's so seduced and duped by a visual culture that we're not reading anymore. We're not studying anymore. We don't really know who we are anymore, and before long, a nation will forget who it was and what it was. It was Ellen White who said those words at the bottom. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. She says the dealings of God should often be repeated for his people in this generation. The Lord has wrought a wonder-working God. The past history of the cause of God needs to be often brought before the people, young and old. We need to recount God's goodness and to praise him for his wonderful work. This is the theme text of GYC, the theme passage, but if not, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you, in, and it's kind of old English this, we have no, what does it mean we have no need to answer you in this matter? The way I read it is this, I read it as kind of like, we don't have to think twice about what we're about to say, like, our answer certain, and let me tell you what it is. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Amen? Amen? We all love the God, that's verse 17. We all love verse 17, God. But verse 18 says, but if not, 
we still won't worship you. Some of you in this room have been in a situation where you were placed with a but if not. Some of you may in the future be placed with a situation, but if not. What do you think of God when God doesn't deliver you like the great missionary stories that we read about? You heard the testimony at lunchtime today? Of those missionaries in the Philippines? Flying evacuation flights and ministering to the people there in the Philippines and, 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 and the helicopter? It disappears. And we were all waiting for the great, we were all waiting for the great escape story. We were all waiting for them to be found on a desert island somewhere, surviving on coconuts. We were all waiting for them to be floating in the sea on a, on a plank of wood and they get rescued. We were waiting for five days for that story of verse 17, but then it slowly went to verse 18. God didn't deliver them. The helicopter did disappear. And worse, we can't even find the helicopter. We can't even locate it on the ocean floor. So now you have this lack of clothes, all of that. Our God who we serve can be verse 17, but our God can be verse 18. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 7, 1 to 17. In Joshua chapter 4, there's a story, not story, oh, there's instruction that Joshua tells the children of Israel. In Joshua chapter 4, verse 1 to 7, Joshua 4, verse 1 to 7, it says, read, just read along, it says, It came to pass when the, ch- the people were clean passed over the Jordan, that the Lord spake to Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out the midst of the Jordan, one of the place where the pre- out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in your lodging place where you shall lodge this night. And Joshua called 12 men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man. And Joshua said to them, pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan and take up every man of you a stone on his shoulder. So he gives them, summarize, get 12 men, go to the river Jordan, pick up 12 rocks, put them on your your shoulders and carry them back out the river Jordan. And this is why, verse 6. That it may be a sign among you that when your children ask you and say, what do these stones mean? You will answer them and say that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be a memorial unto your children forever. So he says, take these stones. Put these stones there on the side of the River Jordan that when your children walk by in successive generations and one of your great-grandchildren says to your great-grandfather and says, hmm, what's the meaning of that stone? You can recount to them the story. This is the stone that reminds us that our fathers crossed over the River Jordan and their feet went into it and the waters parted. It's important for us to remember our past and remind ourselves of the stories of the past Firstly, of God's protection and of God's goodness and of God's guidance over the movement that we had. It was Isaac Newton, I've said before, who said this quote, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. As we look back into our spiritual lineage, this is the Reformation Wall in Geneva. As we look back into our spiritual lineage, in a sense, as these giants of the faith, there's John Knox there, there's John Calvin there, there's uh, Beze, uh, Beze there and Berry. As we stand back and, and they look down on us, so to speak, and, and, and what are their stories and what is the, the, um, the footsteps that we're passing in? I want to take you to the Waldensian Valleys. In the Waldensian Valleys, it's a, a beautiful place to go. If any of you get the opportunity, the best place to visit in Italy is not the fashion markets of Milan. Amen. It's not even the Colosseum of, it, of Rome. And it's certainly not the Vatican Museum. But if you ever go to Italy, a good, a good contrast is to start in Rome, and you do all the Vatican stuff, and after about two days, your, your mind and your eyes are just like over, overblown from all the visual stimulation of all the art and the gold and the marble and the engravings. It's just like boom. Then from Rome, go there to the Waldensian Valleys. And the contrast between the man-made luxury and then God's simplicity is just like, it's beautiful. And up there in the valleys, the Waldensian Valleys, today there's about, well, there was about seven Waldensian Valleys. This is a map showing the, the seven different Waldensian Valleys and the different uh, towns 
that they had back in the, this is you're looking at the 1300s, the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, and so on. And if you look at these, the, 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 the valleys, if you were to understand the topography, this place here, the Pradel Torno, this was where they trained their pastors. It was the College of the Barbs. And the reason they chose that as the location to train their pastors is because that valley is kind of the central valley. It's the middle valley. It's the one with the highest peaks on all sides. And it's also the one, you can't tell it so much on this, this one here, but as you, as you drive this road here, and you drive this road here, and you drive this road around here, and you, actually get, you eventually get up there, that road is like, like that on each side. And you're, following a, and you're following a river as you go up this gorge. The point being, if you're at the end of that valley, you're protected. And there's these amazing stories of how you had eight Waldensian warriors holding off 10,000 soldiers trying to march up the valley. Because all they had to do is, pop, pop, first two, they fall over. Pop, pop, second two, they fall on top of the first two. Pop, pop, third two, they fall on top of the next. The path is blocked. And then the rest of them just push stones down on them and it's, it's over. Like they chose that valley as a protective place where God could protect their training of the pastors and they also retreated there many times when they were persecuted in the other valleys, they retreated there to the Prado del Torno. This is the college of the Barbs, the, the pastor's college where they would train their ministers and from this school they would go out throughout Europe and also throughout Italy and, work, and, and train as pastors. Today they have the, the Bible copy table there and this is original Bible copy table that they've used for hundreds of years, where they would copy the Bible out by hand. You know, when the Reformation and the Waldensians met in 1532, the Waldensians pledged and gave a gift to the Reformation. They said, we'll give you a Bible. And it's fascinating because they said, we have our Bible that we've had for hundreds of years. We will translate a copy of our Bible into French. And they did that. When they compared the French Bible the Waldensians gave with like the Bibles that we have, like the, the King James, translate into French, it's like almost 100% accuracy, meaning God's word by them had been protected for hundreds of years by Bible copying by hand. In World War II, they hid that Bible copy table. They were fearful that you know, some army would come in and take it, so it's, it's precious to them. They took it and hid it somewhere and brought it back after the war. In 1560, in 1560, the Waldensians and the Valleys were given a choice. And God, not God, the Catholics said to them, attend Mass or die. Now, St. Peter's Basilica hadn't been built then, so the picture's not historically accurate, but I just wanted to get the idea of Rome. Attend Mass or die. The Waldensian leaders met together in Bobbio, a town, and they pledged and said, we will not falter, we will not bend, we will not break. And so they went. They retreated. Let me just go back to that picture. The Waldensians, there was about 18,000 Waldensians in some of these valleys in 1560, and they all retreated up here to Pradel Torno, their stronghold. They retreat there. The armies of the Pope come in, or the Duke of Savoy, and they had 4,000 soldiers. In addition, what they always did when they fought the Waldensians is they had 4,000 soldiers, and then they went to the prisons. Say, hey, you want to come fight for us? You'll be absolved of all your, of all your crimes. So in addition to 4,000 soldiers, they had about 8,000 reprobates of society who don't care. They don't, they don't follow the Geneva War Code or Convention or whatever. They just they go and do whatever they have to do to do whatever they have to do. So you've got 4,000 plus 8,000, and they march into the valleys. The Waldensians retreat into their stronghold, into their stronghold in the Prado del Torno, and they're praying one morning, unaware this is happening, and they're praying and they hear the sounds further down further down the gorge, that the soldiers are coming. They dispatch straight away six Waldensian warriors. They hold them off for a bit. And they're fighting all day. The Waldensians are on the higher ground. They're fighting the soldiers down below. And that night, there's a pause in the fighting. And the Waldensians are on the mountainside above, Roman soldiers below. And all of a sudden in the valleys, it echoes out the sound of laughter. Laughter. The soldiers, the 10,000 soldiers in the valley are laughing because as they look up, they see the Waldensians on the side of the mountain kneeling down and praying. 
They're laughing, praying for God's protection. About half an hour later, a sound was heard. Boom. 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 The 10,000 soldiers thinking, thinking that an army of Waldensians was flanking them from another valley, dropped their weapons and run. Those weapons became very useful for the Waldensians later on. Drop their weapons and run. Do you know what the banging sound was? No. You probably won't guess. It was a little boy playing a drum. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Daniel 3 verse 17 says, Our God who we serve can deliver us, and we believe he will. That's 1560 for the Waldensians. There's a little boy playing with a drum, and God uses his little boy playing a drum to make the soldiers believe there's a whole legion of troops coming, and they run. But fast forward to 16... Sorry. 1680, I think. Some, no, 1667 or something. Ashley talked about it in the last presentation. You see, we serve a God that can deliver us by something as simple as a boy hitting a drum. But in 1650-something, I forget the exact thing, it was on April the 24th on a Sabbath morning, they were again given the same, the same thing, attend mass or die. And on the Sabbath morning at 4 a.m. in the morning, while they're still in bed, the massacre starts in the lower valley. And if you read how John Fox display, de describes the massacre, there's young kids in here, it's too gruesome. They plowed men into their own fields that they farmed. They chopped people's heads off and they made the fathers wear their sons and their daughters' heads on top of their heads as they walked them further up the valley. They skinned people alive. Our God who we serve can what? He can deliver us. We love the story of the boy and the drum. But when they came to Castelluzzo, there was no boy beating a drum. Where was God? Where's God? He is, as that, that hymn says, he's standing in the shadows watching over his own. They marched him. Some of them tried to hide in a cave just below this peak. And the, the Roman soldiers, they marched up the mountain. They pulled them out the cave. And they marched them to that point there. And, and today, all there is is a stack of stones that fellow pilgrims have laid at the top. A stack of stone. There's no Mac. There's, there's no, sorry, there's no plaque. There's no memorial. There's nothing. They marched them to the top and they marched them over. And at that point, you can't really see there, but there's a drop of a good 50, 60 meters to the rocks below. And they just marched them over the edge. 2,000 massacred that day. 2,000. When we think of our God and we think of what he can do, we should not serve God because of the blessings he gives us. We don't only serve God because of the times he answers our prayers exactly as we ask him. What about when God doesn't give you the good grade that you didn't even study for? What about when God doesn't heal your relative of sickness? What about then? When you're in the hospital room and you're praying and God doesn't answer. What do you do then? He hasn't answered as you want him to answer. Daniel 3 is that crucial passage where you believe he can, but if he doesn't, our worship is not dependent on the blessings God gives to us. 1 Peter 1.7 says, the genuine testedness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Our faith sometimes has to go through those tests. I read this book once. If you've not read this book, it's an interesting book called The Insanity of God. It's written by a guy called Nick Ripkin. And he, he was a missionary. He served in Africa for some time and, and didn't have a very fruitful missionary experience there in terms of baptisms. But he then, after his missionary experience, he writes his stories on that. But then after his missionary experience, he then, he then travels the world and meets Christians in persecuted countries. And he writes down their stories. And it's fascinating. He goes to Russia. He goes to Romania. He goes to China. And he writes down the stories of the Christians in these countries and what they went through. 
And he raises some powerful concepts for you and I today. Interestingly, he says the Christians in the persecuted countries never pray for freedom. You know, here in America, we love to pray, oh, God, thank you for our freedom. Thank you for our freedom. God bless America, stars and stripes, all right? We love it. He's like, the Christians there don't pray for freedom. And they don't ask for freedom because he said, we're always free to worship. What we're thanking God for freedom here is we're thanking God for freedom to worship God without consequences. It's not freedom. Mankind is born free. You're always free to worship God. You're just thanking God that you don't have consequences for worshiping God. He's like the Christians there in Rome. He said it was in Romania, and he was talking to this group of pastors or, or people there, and they were telling him all about the persecution, the prisons they had gone to, and all this stuff. And he said to them, like, why don't you write this in a book? Why don't you write it in a book? And he said one of the old men, he walked him to the window. He said the old, this old Romanian man walked him to the window. And he said, what do you see over there? He said, the sun. What does the sun do? He said, it rises. What does it do in the evening? It sets. He said, who writes a book on the rising and setting of the sun? No one, because it happens every day. We don't write books on our persecution because it just happens. It's no big deal. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably will always be a normal part of life. We're privileged, many of us, that we have not suffered too much persecution. You died for that is the, is the presentation title. If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. I wonder, how many of you heard of the Anabaptists? Some of you have, okay. The Anabaptists were a group of people in the 1500s and then later on who believed in a certain teaching. They were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. They had it rough. The word Anabaptist literally means rebaptism. Because it was a belief. In those days, all infant babies are baptized. You're baptized as a baby. They then read the Bible and said, the Bible says he that believes and is baptized should be. They said, we can't believe when we're a baby. We can't choose when we're a baby. Therefore, that baptism is not valid. We have to get baptized again. And they were called the Anabaptists. The descendants of them today would be the Mennonites, the Amish, and there's another one. I forget. But then, sorry? Probably, yeah. But there's a few of their descendants still, and they, they, they have Anabaptist roots. They also believe staunchly, 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 staunchly against the union of church and state. That's why the Mormon, no, sorry, the, the Mennonites and, or the Amish or whichever one of those don't believe in having technology today. It's not because they want to be old fashioned, it's because they don't want to have a link and a reliance on the state. And they want their lives to be separated from the state. It's not like they just enjoy, you know, horse and carts. So in Zurich, Zurich was a stronghold for the Reformation in, in Switzerland with Zwingli leading the Reformation there. That is a picture of, of one of the churches there. And Zwingli was a great Protestant leader. Ellen White devotes a whole chapter of the book Great Controversy to Zwingli. But Zwingli was not without fault, as was not Martin Luther without fault, and all these other guys, they were not without fault. But Ellen White writes very favorably about him. Yet while he was defending the faith against the Catholics, he also persecuted the Protestants he disagreed with, the Anabaptists. And Anabaptist means rebaptism, Because in those days, it was believed that the prevailing practice was to be baptized at birth. The idea that an adult could be baptized was countercultural. Anabaptists believed that baptism was only valid if a person freely confessed. And, you know, they read these Bible texts and said, no, uh, an infant can't be baptized. A child can't be baptized. We have to be adults or we have to at least be of an age where we can understand the decision that we're making. That's why in the Adventist church today, we may have children baptized, but we don't go too, too young. They've got to know what they're doing. They've got to take that decision on board for themselves. Dedication is when the child spiritual life is handed into the hands of the parents. Baptism is when you take your spiritual life for yourself. The Anabaptist came along and says no. And you see, in, in Zurich, Switzerland, the problem was, one of Zwingli's problems, is his reform was connected to the city council. And he only allowed the reform to go as quick as he could convince the rest of the city council to move. And so even though he saw it in the Bible, he says, yeah, but we've got to talk to the city council. So most of the reformers that we talk about we are actually what we call the magisterial reformation, which means the reformation was linked to the state. 
The Anabaptists were part of what we call the Radical Reformation, where they believed completely against linking anything with the state. Martin Luther was magisterial because he was linked to the German princes. The English Reformation was magisterial because it's linked to the crown. The Anabaptists, though, said no. No church, no state. The first martyr who was Anabaptist was a guy called Felix Mantz. He was 29. At the age of 29, well, at the age of 27, he got baptized. This is revolutionary. It's countercultural. The presentation is titled, You Die for That. Today, some of us are saying, why do I need to be baptized? I've accepted Jesus in my heart. Isn't that good enough? Well, sometimes we don't understand why the Bible says something. And one of the greatest acts of worship is to do what something the Bible says, even though you don't understand why it says what it says. Why does the Bible say to go to church on Saturday? What's the logical reason? You know what? Well, it's creation, but still. At the end of the day, if you really want to push, what's the logical? It eventually comes down to the third, well, God said so. And there's some, there's some things that we can rationally explain, like even some of the dietary laws. Well, that makes sense because that food's not healthy for you and that food is. I can understand that one. But there's some things that it's like, God said. Why do I have to physically stand here and another man or someone takes hold of me and puts me down and brings me up? Why do I have to do that? What's the point? Why do I got to get wet? Change my clothes. Why? God said so. God said so. There's some things we don't understand. And Felix Mann says, the Bible says it. I should get baptized. He gets baptized. He starts teaching it. He starts preaching it. He starts writing books and tracts on it. And he was the first one that the Zurich Council said, him. How was he, how was he martyred? Well, they said, well, if you like to be rebaptized, we're going to stick you in water. We're not going to burn you at the stake. And so it was 3 p.m. I forget the exact day. He was taken to the middle of that river right there in a boat. They tied his hands behind his backs. They tied his feet together. They put a pole between the two of them, and they dropped him in the water. His mother and his brother watched from the riverbanks, and they both said to him, stay hold, stay strong with your faith. Don't give up. And he goes into the middle of that river, and is baptized in death. Some of you are mingering about baptism today. Don't want to be baptized or not want to be baptized. It's a biblical truth that's been handed down to us, stained in blood. And baptism today, if you want to get baptized, even if it's not convenient, you can find a way to get baptized. When you see those pictures online of people getting baptized in prison, they find a way to get baptized. When you see a place of people getting baptized in a place where they don't even have much water, they can barely fill a barrel, we can still baptize someone in a barrel. And some of us come from churches where the baptistry is heated, they provide robes. The deaconesses put um, carpets down and we get towels the minute we get out of the water. People clap and cheer and they have a party afterwards. Harden not your heart. Dirk Willems was another Anabaptist. He was in prison for his faith in 1569. He was held in a prison in a castle and he escaped by making a rope from the bedsheets. He crossed the frozen moat because the, the, the castle was surrounded by a frozen moat. It's an amazing story. He crosses the moat on the ice because he's been in prison for so long, he's so skinny. He doesn't break the ice. The prison guard comes running after him, and he was a big fat Dutchman. And as he gets on that ice, he falls through the ice because he's fat, and the other guy's skinny. I'm sorry it's not politically correct, but it is what it is. Now what do you do? You're escaping from prison, and the prison guard chasing you falls into the ice. Do you say, praise the Lord, he's delivered me of my enemies? What do you say? What do you do? This is how we want the story to end. We want the story to end. He goes and helps him out. The man is so thankful that he saved his life. He says, all right, I'll turn my back for 30 seconds. That's what we want the story to end as, and then he runs off and he can't catch him, and he lives happily ever after. But how does the story really end? He turns around, and, and they've got a, they've, they've got a, um, 
in, in Canada, with the Anabaptist community, they've made a, um, a statue of this. He turns around and he goes and rescues the guard who then rearrests him, takes him back to prison and kills him. There's no happy end. It's not verse 17, it's verse 18. It's not verse 17. It's not God is delivering him. God did deliver him. He escaped by the, he escaped by the, what's it called? By the rope he made. God delivered him. And then the prison guard fell in the ice and he goes to save the prison guard and the prison guard grabs him and takes him back to prison. Our God who we serve will deliver us. And we believe he will. But if not, we still won't worship you. On the day he died, history records that there was a strong east wind. Strong east wind, it says. And they said his cries could be heard for about three or four miles away. Like just the pain of the, the flames were by his feet and, they, and the flames wouldn't come up because the wind just kept blowing. And they say it took him hours to die. Was he regretting saving him? I don't think so. I don't think so. If I've seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. In Oxford, there's three martyrs. It was three martyrs. What did they die for, these people? England, at this point, has gone through a transition. King Henry VIII was Catholic. Then he broke away from the Church of Rome to form the Church of England. But theologically, he's still Catholic. But he's made a break. His son, Edward VI, becomes the throne at the age of nine, and he goes to 15, and he was Protestant, quite a strong Protestant as well. Lady, when he died, the throne passes to Mary. But they're trying to keep England Protestant, so they give it to his cousin, Lady Jane Grey. She's 16 years old at the time. She holds the throne for nine days before Mary I raises an army, captures her, and says, you're a traitor, and executes her. Mary I then becomes the queen, and she's a staunch Catholic, and she's trying to return England back to a Catholic country again, doing her best. And so she picks on some high-ranking people. In Oxford, the martyrs are Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cramner, and Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of Worcester, Bishop of London, and Bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury. And for those of you that don't know, in the Church of England structure, apart from the king or the queen, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the highest-ranking person. Now, Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Mary I ordered him to be killed. Why did they die in Oxford? Well, Oxford was the leading uh, institution, and it was where the preeminent theologians were, were, were. So they were brought to Oxford to debate the theological issue of the day. What was the theological issue? Well, let me tell you a little bit about them first, their arrest. I love the story of Hugh Latimer. He's arrested. But this is fascinating. Hugh Latimer was about 78 or 80 years old when he dies. He was given six weeks when he could have fled as many of the Protestants did. How did it happen? The council summoned him, a man called John Careless, Interesting name. Here's that he's about to be arrested and goes and tells Hugh Latimer, hey, guess what? They're going to arrest you. He's tipping him off. He could have escaped, but he doesn't escape. The Queen's officer, when he did come, merely passed on the summons and left. The Queen's officer comes and he says, knocks on the door. Hi. You need to appear on the 13th of September, 1554, at Tower of London. And goes. Now, some of us would have said, that's the Lord delivering me. He's provided an escape. I've got six weeks to run. And they can't catch me. But you know what? Hugh Latimer was smart and he saw through their plan. Their plan was for him to escape. They wanted him to escape. And he says, no, I'm not escaping. I am not going to escape because you want me to escape. Therefore, I will not escape. And I will stay. Let me read you a quote. The pursuit pursuivant, having delivered his summons, returned to London, leaving Latimer to follow. This unwanted conduct, Bernher thinks, was adopted by the express order of the council to allow Latimer the opportunity of escaping, for they knew that his constancy should deface them in their popery and confirm the ungodly in their truth. It is by no means an improbable supposition that the council did hope to work upon his fears, and beyond all question, it would have been a great triumph for the Romish party if they could induce so conspicuous a champion of reformation as Latimer to abandon his post through fear of personal injury. So it was their plan. That's very high English. They said, if we can make this, this guy escape, 
it will bring shame and disgrace on the cause of Protestantism if their hero is scared of us. And Latimer's like, no, I'm not escaping. I'm not escaping. Latimer said, my friend, be be a welcome messenger to you. And be it known unto you and to all the world that I go willingly to London at this present, being called upon by my prince to render a reckoning of my doctrine as ever I was at any place in the world. I doubt not but that God, as he hath made me worthy to preach his word before two excellent princes, so will he able me to witness the same unto the third, either to her discomfort or comfort, discomfort eternally. So Latimer, of his own accord, goes down to the Tower of London. If you've been to London, you know what the Tower of London looks like. This is it. He goes down to the Tower of London on the 13th of September, 1554, and turns himself in. Another writer says it was a most magnificently courageous decision that that where there are great issues concerned, the greatest of men cannot give ground. Can't give ground. He was taken there. And... From there, he was taken to Oxford. Another man who was taken to Oxford was Thomas Cramner. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the highest ranking official in the Church of England. He was a staunch Protestant and one of the main advisors to King Edward VI. He opened, and this is the thing, he oversaw the divorce of King Henry from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was Mary's mum. You start to see where she's got a, a problem? So this is the guy that got my mum divorced and got me kicked out of the royal family. So not only is he a Protestant, but I've got some personal issue with this guy. He was locked up in prison. There's his prison door. You can see it today. Now, Latimer and Ridley are martyred. And let me just go back a few slides. Latimer and Ridley are martyred. The reason why that picture on the right is in the shot is that's the spot where we know today they were martyred. So they've commemorated it. Ridley and Latimer were martyred on that spot. And Latimer said some famous words. As they're both dying and they're tied to the stake back to back, Latimer says to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light a candle in England that will never be put out. Powerful words to end your life with. And soon after that, he dies. Ridley took a little while longer to die. And as they die, Thomas Cramner was made to watch from the rooftop of the prison. Thomas Cramner, who was made to watch their death, wasn't killed when they were killed. And he actually, like Jerome in Prague, he goes through a crisis of faith and he recants. He renounces his faith. He's in prison. He says, I renounce Protestantism. I'll be a good Catholic. Now, canon law stipulates, canon law stipulates that when a heretic recants, they be reprieved and let go. But Mary I does not let Thomas Cramner go. Why? She does not let him go because she said this. His iniquity and obstinacy was so great against God and your grace that your clemency and mercy could have no place in him. That's another way of saying he got my mom divorced and I don't like him. Let him who thinks he ta- stand take heed lest he what? Some of us have this idea that we're just going to be this great hero for God. And when the slightest bit of pressure comes, we fold. We fold. And it starts with little things. Little things. Can you come around to my house on Sabbath? But it's Saturday. We come up with all type of reasons why we can't go. Aside from saying, I'm sorry, I go to church. Oh, I'm busy. Hey, why do you dress up in a suit every Sabbath? Oh, you know, I've got a wedding to go to. I go to a wedding every week? Well, you know, know lots of people, don't I? Or whatever, we just make, we, we're just afraid of being upfront about our faith. Cramner was brought to this building, you can go to it today, at St. Mary's Church. <clears throat> He recanted once, and he's being brought back to renounce his faith again. We know exactly where he stood. He stood. He stood. He stood. He stood. He stood by this pillar here. It was by this pillar here. They didn't want him to stand in the pulpit because that's too high. Too much honor. 
They didn't want him on the floor because that's too low. We can't see him. So they built a platform about one meter high next to that pillar. And I don't know why, but they also wedged into the pillar a cutout so that we know exactly that Thomas Cramner was standing on a piece of wood cut out into the pillar here. And that's where he stood. And he stood there, and he has to renounce his faith again. And as he stands there in very great English, and it's like about four paragraphs long what he says, but essentially what he said is, I renounce my previous recantation. And he was taken from there. It's just about 200 meter walk around the corner to the same spot where Ridley and Latimer were burned. And John Fox in his Fox's Book of Martyrs said that when he went there to the flames, as they lit the flame, he stood there and he held his right hand in the flame. And he said, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, it shall first be burned. As a visible symbol that the hand that signed the recantation will be burned first. He dies in 1556, a year after the two of the guys die. Now, what was the issue? What was the issue why they were killed? As Adventists, we understand our end time issues is maybe Revelation 7, Revelation 14, Exodus chapter 20. What was their issue? Why were they dying? Communion. The communion service. The one that we take for granted, the one that we don't enjoy because church service is too long when it's communion. Amen. Maybe. The one the kids don't like. The one that's inconvenient because you have to take your shoes and your socks off. The one that says, you've got to go into that room and that room. The one the deaconesses have to do all this washing for. That service. Make the bread and the grape juice. The deacons have to carry it. You know, that service. That's why they died. You see, there's about four major beliefs in communion. The Catholics believe, it's not very clear there, sorry for that. The Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Transubstantiation believes that the bread and wine is the literal body and blood of Jesus. The Reformed faith, or the Calvins, Calvinists, believe in receptionism, where they say Christ is not present literally, but he's spiritually present. Is that true, yes or no? Careful. Got to be specific on some of these things, amen? Can't be loose on some stuff. Some stuff you've got to be very particular. The Lutherans believed in consubstantiation, which believed this, that Christ's body and blood are present in the bread and wine, but they don't transform. So God, Christ is in that bread, and Christ is in the wine, but the wine and the bread haven't transformed. They're still bread and wine. Do we believe that? Then Zwingli comes along, and he says memorialism. He says there's no physical or spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and wine. The service is a remembrance of Christ. Which one do we believe? Which line do we as Adventists come from? Which reformer? Zwingli. Zwingli. And Zwingli and Luther had huge differences on this. This was a life and death issue in the 1500s. Most of the martyrs, this was the question they asked them. What's the bread? What is the bread? That was the question. Latimer said, where is the Lord? He's in heaven. <laughs> he went there after the resurrection. The change at communion is in the heart of the believer, not in the bread. Amen? The bread doesn't change. The change comes in your heart. This was a life and death issue. If I have seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. How do you know when to take a stand? How do you know? How do you know? Some people take stands for things that is not worth taking a stand for. If you ever read the story in the book Great Controversy about the placards in the French Reformation, 
they posted these placards on all the doors of the churches, and someone even posted a placard on the king's bedroom. The placard had truth on it, but the way it was done, it led to basically the halting of the Reformation in France, the, the killing of countless Protestants, and the banishing of Protestants from the country of France. They said the truth, but they didn't do it right. How do you know when to stand? I want to share with you some things I've learned. Maybe, hopefully it can help some, someone. Of where do we stand? I'd say that there are kind of four layers of beliefs that we have as a people. We have what are called doctrines. We have what are called teachings. We have what I've labeled as majority-minority views, and we have individual positions. I would say we stand for life and death on doctrines, not teachings. Teachings can, they can change a bit, or it's not a test of fellowship. A teaching is not a test of fellowship. Majority-minority views, individual positions. What's a doctrine? A doctrine is a fundamental belief. It's what we would call a pillar, a landmark. It defines a person as a Seventh-day Adventist. We get doctrines as a church by careful worldwide study and church-wide consensus, and they're formed and settled over sometimes a long period of time. Our belief on the Sabbath took us about 10 years as a church to come to. Our belief on the, the, the state of the dead took several years. Our belief on tithe took us about 30 years to come to. Our belief on the Trinity took us about 70 years, or the Godhead took us about 70 years to come to. Settled over a long period of time, worldwide church consensus. Our doctrines, our 28 fundamental beliefs are examples of these. What about a teaching? A teaching, I believe, is a maybe a belief or a lifestyle issue that the church may have adopted, but we don't say it's a test of faith. But it could represent what we hold to be true. We get problems in our church when people make teachings on majority views, doctrinal issues. Or where we defend them with the weight of a doctrine, but it's not a doctrine. There are some churches you can go to where whether you have a Christmas tree in the church or not, is life and death. And I mean life and death. I've pastored churches where it was life and almost death for me as the pastor. Like it got heated, it got angry, it got shouting over this pagan symbol. Read all the Ellen White, Ellen White quotes you want in the world. Boop, 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 mean nothing. Is that really a doctrine of the church? No, it's not. The best illustration for this, I think, is diet. What's the doctrine of diet? what you can and cannot eat biblically. Not scientifically, not Ellen White, biblically. Clean, unclean. That's all you can prove if you're just using the Bible. You can show that vegetarianism came from the Garden of Eden, amen? But you can't mandate it from the Bible because the Bible doesn't mandate it. The Bible only mandates what? Clean, unclean. And that's why as a church, that's what we require when someone's baptized. Vegetarianism, though, we'd say it's a teaching because it's what? Best practice. But we don't mandate people to be vegetarian. Amen? We don't. It's best practice. Most of our church potlucks are. The food here is. It's the best thing to do. But it's not a doctrine. It's a teaching. Best practice. But it's not a doctrine. Other health things that are healthier to do this and that, fine. But don't make it doctrinal. Problem with most of our potluck police is they make stuff that's not doctrine, doctrine. It's not a doctrine. Majority and minority views, what is that? Positions or beliefs held by larger or groups that are not recognized as doctrines or teachings, and it could include ideas that are not faith core ideas. Is the law in Galatians the law of God, or is it ceremonial law? I don't know, have a debate about it. Ellen White says it doesn't really matter which one you believe. It's up to you. Is 140,000 literal or symbolic? I don't know. When you get to heaven, you can count. <laughs> Amen. Doesn't really matter. Like it's a majority, it's fine. We shouldn't make those, these majority, like we shouldn't be debating those. Shouldn't. 
Move on to bigger pictures, amen? Individual positions. I don't know. I don't have the best illustrations in my head right now. I met someone once that believed Jesus is not going to come unless all women have their heads covered in church. He believed it so passionately, he carried a bunch of flies in his briefcase everywhere he goes and passes them out to everyone and cries when he talks. He deeply believed this. It's a biblical, doctrinal belief that you have to have your head covered and Jesus is not coming in because all you sinful ladies are in here. If you believe that, go ahead, believe it, but just keep it to yourself, amen. <laughs> Doctrine, teaching. I would say our reformers, those who lay down their life, you died for that. Die for something that's the top, not something lower down. Not something lower down. Don't split your church on a lower down issue. Amen? Mm-mm, don't do it. Got churches dividing on stupid stuff. Really silly stuff. Let's remember what the big picture is. Remember what the world needs to hear. And let's not be divided on this lower down stuff. Sabbath. Last one, actually. How do we get the Sabbath? This is the first Adventist church. Sabbath keeping. Washington, New Hampshire. It was in this church, the town marker says, the birthplace of the Adventist church in North America. It was in this church where, you may, may know the story, Frederick Wheeler's preaching, doing communion service. And in his congregation, he's got a young lady called Fre Rachel Preston Oaks. And she's thinking, hmm, he's talking about keeping the commandments, and he's not keeping them. She goes to see him after the church, and she says, Mr. Preacher, you were talking about preaching the commandments, and you're not keeping the commandments because today's Sunday. You should be keeping the Sabbath. And she was a Seventh-day Baptist. How did Seventh-day Baptism come to America? Where did it come from? Anyone know? Anyone know? I'll give you one guess where it came from. One guess. How did it come to America? It's not American. And the church said amen. <laughs> came from England. If you didn't know, that's where I come from too. Amen. So, so after they have the Sabbath thing here, Frederick Wheeler and a few other people meet in this house. Joseph Bates goes to this house. He hears about the Sabbath keepers. He goes from Fairhaven, uh, Massachusetts. He goes, or Connecticut, where it is. He goes up there to this house. Cyrus Farnsworth, Joseph Bates, and Frederick Wheeler meet in this house. And you can go to this house today. It's not owned by Adventists. You could drive outside, take a picture, and they, and, and they probably wonder why people take pictures. But in that house... By the bottom left, right-hand window, they have a Bible study all night, and they decide to keep the Sabbath. It was after meeting in that house that Joseph Bates goes home. You probably heard this story. Joseph Bates goes home. He's walking across the bridge, and someone says to him, what's the news, Captain Bates? He says, the news is the seventh day is the Sabbath. He was on his way back home from that house. Now, what was the journey? What was the journey of the Sabbath to Washington, New Hampshire? It starts, as I said earlier, it starts in England. The Sabbath keeping has its roots in the U.S. go back to London, and sorry, England and London. This spot here, the site of the Tyburn tree. If you go there to London, this is right outside Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner. It's at the end of Oxford Street, which is like our Fifth Avenue in, in, in London, all these shopping streets. And there, at the end of Oxford Street, you've got a little, in the middle of the road where a traffic light is, and this little circle on the ground. It's where they took traitors to be martyred in London. And it was on 1661 that the Sabbatarian preacher, John James, was dragged from his pulpit, taken to that spot, and executed. Why? For preaching the Sabbath. For preaching the Sabbath. He was taken to the site of the Tyburn tree, and there he was executed. Three years later, the Seventh-day Baptist in England decided to raise some money, and in 1664, they sent Stephen Mumford to the United States to be a missionary. The Seventh-day Baptist came in 1664, and it will be the Seventh-day Baptist in the U.S. Initially, the Seventh-day Baptists were not evangelistic. They started small groups, but they weren't really proactive in their evangelism. They believed that the Sabbath was the truth, and eventually the whole world's going to know the truth, so we don't really, really need to preach the truth. But in the 1830s, they started to get evangelistic, and in the 1830s, they start to write tracts on the Sabbath. And some of those tracts fell into the hands of Millerite Adventists. 
And one of those tracks of the Seventh-day Baptists, well, you have Rachel Preston Oaks, who's a Seventh-day Baptist, and she converts Frederick Wheeler. Some of those Seventh-day Baptist tracks fall in the hands of Joseph Bates. He keeps the Sabbath. Some of those Seventh-day Baptist tracks fall into the hands of J. N. Andrews. He keeps the Sabbath. And so our Sabbath-keeping roots, as a church in North America, which then spread to the world, came to America from the Seventh-day Baptist, who came... This, at least this part of them, came from London, England. And they came from a preacher by the name of John Barnes who was executed. And it was because he was executed, they said, you know what? We need to spread out and send someone to America. Send someone to the United States. Church, in the last days, in the last days, we'll have a choice. In the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there's two beasts in Revelation 13. You've got the leopard-like beast with seven heads and ten horns, and you've got the lamb-like beast. And these two beasts are going to institute, after they get together, they're going to institute some worship. You'll have the seal of God, and you'll have the mark of the beast. Our issue is not going to be baptism or not baptism. Our issue is not going to be communion or not communion. Those battles have been fought already. Our issue, our issue is going to be an issue of worship. And our issue is going to be a question as to who we have as our ultimate supremacy, which will be demonstrated in a practical way on which day of the week you're going to worship on. Some would say, what's the big issue? What's the big issue? One day or another day? As long as I worship God, that's all that matters. But God says, no, this day, this day. And church, friends, may we be faithful to God. And may we have the spirit of Daniel, his three friends, who said, our God can deliver us, and we believe he will. But if not, we still won't worship you. If he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to worship you. There's some amazing stories of how God delivered his people in the past, and there's some gruesome stories of how God was standing in the shadows. The point is, God's true followers do not follow God for the blessings he gives them. Because that's really just another word for a prosperity gospel. If I only worship God when I get stuff, I may not be getting rich, but it's still a prosperity form of the gospel. In that book, Insanity of God, one of the preachers in Eastern Europe met with the man, Nick Ripkin, and he said these words that resonate, and they resonate with us today. He said these words. He said, don't ever give up in freedom what we, had, what we would never have given up in persecution. Today we have freedom to come to GYC, to drive here, spend our money and come, to walk back and forth freely with little worry on our mind. Christianity is convenient, for the most part, with little opposition. So convenient sometimes that we can sometimes wonder what's the point or why bother. Don't ever give up in freedom. What other countries and other generations refused to give up in persecution. Our spiritual forefathers believed in communion so much that they'll die for it. Believe in baptism so much, they'll die for it. Because they believed that that was doctrinally important and it formed an identity as what the Christian church should be. May we also have the same steadfastness to hold on to God's word. And the basis of our identity is what God says as his fundamental beliefs that define who we are as a people. And may we be faithful that we're not dying for jumping off a building, doing a backflip. But if God calls us to die, it's for something serious. It's for something doctrinal. It's for something foundational. It's for a pillar of our beliefs. May we live for a cause bigger than ourselves. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to call ourselves Christians. To call ourselves followers of you today.
May we truly be disciples. May you help to form and shape our identity. We thank you, Lord, for the stands that people in the past have made that makes us who and what we are. As we look back on our spiritual lineage, may it give us a greater sense of purpose and mission today. We pray in Christ's name. This message was recorded in partnership with AudioBurst and GYC Conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.